and greetings, and welcome to the Live Happy Now podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Houston. Thrilled that wherever you are in the world and whatever you may be doing, you are making us a part of your day. We also want to thank our partners, Live Happy Magazine, issues available in stores now. Also, our digital edition is available in the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. And, of course, our other partner, which is Life Reimagined. Their website is lifereimagined.org slash happy. They've got all kinds of processes for you to go through and uh, resources and research for you to skim through and read in depth however you want to do it as you make your journey towards your peak happiness because they say as you awaken to the power of happiness so do your dreams so what's next find out more at lifereimagined.org slash happy. Very excited about our guest today. Peter Neal is the director of the World Ocean Observatory, and we're going to learn more about the importance of our oceans for our global well-being. And uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as you can tell, we're very interested in positive psychology and happiness, and one of the best things that we can do to make our lives happier is to make our environment happier. So we're excited to get some information from you. Thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm delighted to be here on this very special day, Earth Day, which is uh, uh, a day that is celebrated on, 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 on April 22nd, but every day is Earth Day, just as every day is Ocean Day. That's that's very true. Now, you are the founder, and uh, or, or at least the director of the World Ocean Observatory. Can you tell us more about that and why it was created? Uh, well, it was created as a result of, a, of an international commission in 1998, the UN Year of the Ocean, that called for a web-based uh, uh, place of exchange of information and educational services about the ocean, uh, uniquely defined as an integrated global social system. So it transcended the conventional approach or attitude toward the ocean in, in terms of species and habitat and links the ocean to climate, freshwater, food, energy, um, health, security, cultural traditions, personal recreation. Basically, the ocean is a global system that connects us all. It does not separate people. It actually unites us in many, many different ways uh, uh, through nature, through finance, through uh, uh, cultural exchange, through intellectual uh, exchange. I mean, all of the aspects that we, we include when we talk about globalization, that basically is enabled by the ocean. Well, one thing I think that, uh, and we're going to talk about this in depth here in this uh, edition of the podcast, is that you're talking about a in your book, Once and Future Ocean, which is available on Amazon.com, IPG.com, and at WorldOceanObservatory.org. Got to get a little plug in there, and we'll do it again at the end of the episode, and probably a few more times in between, is you talk about a paradigm shift from land-based values and behaviors to water as a new organizing principle. Now, I got to admit to you, I'm from Nebraska, so I'm as far, I grew up as far from oceans as you possibly can. Explain well, to me I'm, what I'm from St. Louis. So well, see, you there you go. A common origin. <laughs> we're uh, we we're both were, Midwestern. We were, we were we were grain fed. Yes. Uh, I never saw the ocean until I was 18 years of age. So uh, I came to it uh, as uh, as a complete stranger, uh, and I saw it uh, the first time in wonder. Uh, I I I saw it as this vast emptiness. Uh, I saw it primarily as a beautiful place, but a place apart. Uh, and like most people, I had very little understanding of the full dynamic of the ocean and how much it mattered. Uh, and I think that's still true. I think that 
part of my job is simply to proselytize about how the ocean connects with all the things that, that we take for granted uh, in, our, in our lives today. Now, I think uh, we are at a very dangerous and important point in history. I think that the paradigm that we have uh, enjoyed the benefits of through the Industrial Revolution, which is basically uh, unlimited consumption, uh, unlimited growth based on consumption and enabled by, the fo- by fossil fuels, by proliferate energy. Uh, that is from extraction of, 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 of oil and gas. We have all benefited, the world has benefited from that paradigm. But we are now at a point where the negatives overwhelm the positives. And that what we have now, which is something that is very evident in, 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 in the United States, but all through the world and in the markets, we have a kind of realization that that old paradigm no longer serves us well. My argument is, and it's dangerous to say this to someone who's broadcasting from Texas, (laughs) but the fact is I believe the age of oil is over and we are going to, it is going to be painful to reorganize ourselves, reimagine ourselves using your language in your lead in, um, to essentially understand that we may have to change and change dramatically and quickly in order to sustain our way of life, our quality of life, indeed, even to survive. So when you look at the price of oil, when you look at the disruption of the markets, when you look at the bankruptcies of of companies in the oil patch, when you look at the layoffs uh, in the oil business, if you look at the results in the opposition to, to hydraulic fracturing, when you look at all this stuff, it has a kind of uh, momentum. But that momentum is truly based on interests that have been vested for a long, long time and fear, fear of change. Hmm. So my, thought, my argument is that we must figure out what's next. We have to invent our way out of a situation. We talk about excellence. We talk about uh, the American way has always been able to, to invent its way into the future. And that is not just a t- technological fix. Technology will help us in many, many, many different ways. But primarily, we have all the tools we need to make the change. What we don't have is a kind of collective understanding of what's next and the political will. I, th- I think I think you're definitely onto something there because you and and maybe it's because we are in Texas and, and we see it. There is such a resistance to give up what we know works now, and we know that oil and 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 gasoline and and the coal and all of that we know that has worked for so long. Eventually. Uh, we're going to see impacts on the environment from it in a way that cannot be denied. And we're going to see those resources start to run out. So why not at this point when we know it's coming work on the solution instead of waiting until it comes? Okay. That's the question I ask. And I read the, I read many books about this and there's a kind of a, a POC, uh, uh, agreement that we are at this, this sort of apocalyptic moment and you look at books on finance and economics and politics, uh, religion, you look at all these books, and when you get to the last chapter in those books, 
you, you turn the page thinking that there's going to be a suggestion, uh, a, a, a new way forward. And I have yet to find it, except I've said to myself, well, what is the most valuable thing on earth? What truly is the most valuable thing? Is it really oil and gas? Is it diamonds? Um, is it uranium? Uh, is it uh, gold? Is it chocolate? Well, no, it's none of those things. There's not one of those things that we can't do without. But the one thing that we cannot do without is water. And we will, if we deprive ourselves of water, we will, in a very short period of time, die. We will collapse. Mm. We will collapse physically. We will collapse intellectually, psychologically, economically. And as we collapse, so too will our families and so too will our institutions, and so too will our nations. And you can see it all over the world, not just in places like Flint, Michigan, or Sao Paulo, Brazil, where, where, where you have a city of 12 million people that doesn't have a water system and actually can deliver fresh water uh, to, to serve. Uh, when you start looking at conflicts over water in the Middle East, mm-hmm. when you start looking at conflicts and... and, and uh, uh, the economic fallout of, of climate-induced drought uh, in, in, in California. You begin to see that this is a global phenomenon. It is something that is demanding an urgent response in all these different ways that we live. So if that's the fact, then we need to understand this and therefore then organize ourselves to do something about it. Now, when I say water and ocean, I, 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 I combine them. I'm talking about the water cycle that we all learn about in school. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the ocean, the atmosphere, the weather, the mountaintop, the watershed, uh, back to the coast and the ocean, and round again. I'm also talking about the circles and cycles of conveyance in the ocean itself, which affect how, how, how marine... Uh, fisheries operate and how food is distributed. Uh, I'm talking about the upwelling and downfalling of 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 of, of everything in the ocean vertically, uh, where you have um, the, the 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 toxins as well as the nutrients falling. And as these things affect the water column, they affect everything from our uh, our economy and our diet. Uh, and our um, labor and employment and community organization and success. So if you start thinking about water and ocean as this circle and cycle, you begin to understand that there's a kind of, if you accept it, you, you see there's a kind of logical outcome that changes how we value things, how we organize things, and how we behave. You mentioned uh, a term that I think is really interesting because I think when I think of the word hydraulic, I'm thinking of like, you know, presses and, and these types of things. But you talk about a hydraulic society. What, what do you mean by that? What are some examples of, of that? Well, hydraulic means the movement of water. Sure. So when you start, um, you, you, can, you, can, you can talk about, let's look at great civilizations. In history, you can see places in, the, in, in, in India and in the, in the, in the Middle East and, and in the west of, of the United States and in Mexico, these great civilizations that actually were organized around water. You can see it in the ruins themselves of how they managed water. That water then allowed for their agricultural subsistence and, 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 and drove the growth. 
But then these things get to a point where their demand exceeds their supply and they collapse and they collapse very quickly. So we have to figure out a way to manage our water so that we can not only use what we have today, but create through conservation and other adaptations enough that is going to be able to serve not just 7 billion people, but 9 or 11 as we go forward with population growth. I mean, many people will say, oh, well, the, the, the secret is population growth. Well, that's true, but there's a lot of resistance to the things that control population. Mm. Uh, we don't wish disease upon ourselves. We don't wish war upon ourselves. Um, and so that's a, it's an interesting point, but it becomes more and more academic. You have to say, well, okay, fine, let's, dis- let's just assume that is going to work in part, but not completely, what are we going to do next? And so hydraulic society says uh, that we have to figure out a way through conserving how we use water today and the understanding of that. So let me give you an example. When I walk down a supermarket aisle, I hear a torrential cascade of water. I hear the water that's in all of the processing and all of the packaging that goes into Uh, the making of those products that are on the shelf. It takes 1.5 million gallons of water to build a Volkswagen. It takes enormous amounts of water for hydraulic fracking, by the way. Mm. And that's, those are millions of gallons which then are injected with chemicals. They are used to extract the additional uh, uh, oil and gas. And then that water is essentially taken out of the inventory. Of all the water on Earth, 70% of the Earth is covered by water. Of all the water on the Earth, only 3% is fresh. Two of those percentages are in the poles. So today, we are living on 1% of the water. Now, we have to figure out how to extend that utility, and then we also have to figure out how we're going to um, change our behaviors that will allow for that, this water to be supplied. And there are many different ways. We, it's what we grow, how we grow it, what we use to, to, to irrigate it, what we use to, uh, uh, as pesticides, whether we use them or we don't. These are all uh, have water implications. And as we realize that we have to save water, we have another force, another vector in the argument for a more, uh, say, localized or less industrial approach uh, to, to agriculture, different kinds of plants. There are plants, for example, called halophytes, and they grow in salt water, hmm. and they have dietary implications, and they, well, we end up eating those things. Seaweed. I mean, the ocean represents 40% of the world's protein today is delivered from ocean products, and uh, and you know, we are depleting that almost as fast as we're depleting oil. We have to figure out how to way to make that a sustainable um, uh, source of food. And so there, there's another thing. Uh, desalinated water. Uh, right now, Saudi Arabia uh, and other parts of uh, Australia are already desalinating water because they don't have any alternative. Um, there's a new desal plant that's just opened in San Diego. So you have the technology. It's a question of convincing people that we need to use it now and resisting the, the, the vested interests, the, 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 
the, the folks that want to, to, to hold it back because they see that that somehow affects their short-term profit uh, and, um, and that life is how they have had it in the past. I guess I've never understood why, if you see a new thing coming along uh, in whatever industry you're in, say you're in the oil industry, and you say, okay, well, we know eventually this is going to run out, but this hydraulic society, this creating of, of technologies that can that can help us use water in a responsible way, but also to a very advantageous way that we've never used it before, why not get well, on board? Well, exactly. You know, there is an enormous business potential inherent in this idea. There is enormous amounts of technology and, and training and financial implication built into this shift. But the oil companies have done pretty much everything they possibly can to hold it back. They have done everything they possibly can to um, preserve their subsidies but not allow the subsidies for alternatives. Uh, they have done um, uh, things like waste. Uh, if you look at, you always use the example of a plastic bag. Plastic mm-hmm. bags and plastic detritus are all over the world, on all our beaches and in our rivers and our parks and our streams and our gutters and this huge floating island the size of Texas and the Pacific. And, you know, we have the 12 types of plastic. We know how to recycle them all. My dump only recycles one. Some recycle them all, but there has been a concerted effort not to do away with the plastic bags. Why? Because it's an oil-based product. Mm. Yeah, you need If you petroleum. recycled all the plastic on Earth today, you would never need to make another piece of plastic again. But then, that, 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 then you're cutting into someone's bottom line, and someone's going to get mad about that. <laughs> well... It's true. Someone is going to get mad about it. But but if you look today in our community here in Maine, but also in Chicago and New York and Los Angeles, where you have now banned some plastic bags, Mm -hmm. because from the bottom up, people have realized that this is this is this is an unwelcome thing. There's a phenomenon here that is not good. And they have caused the political change required and it has come up through local municipal governments and city councils and state governments where suddenly the plastic bag is no longer tenable and so you know i'm sorry about the plastic bag industry but there's another bag industry there's another container industry there's another way of dealing with it but it requires imagination and invention and a willing to change, willingness to change. I guess that's just it. If, if these companies that are making plastic bags and then they're they're not allowed to do so anymore, well, then get into the get into the paper bag industry, get into the cloth bag industry. Uh, you know, I mean, right. I guess you have to change your business structure, but you can still make money. I, I, I don't well, know. I don't. Do you really? I mean, you have to change your, your, your but you you may end up using all many of the same skills, your marketing sure. skills, your sales skills. You know, your distribution skills, there may be all these things that are inherent in your company, but you just you evolve the product. Yeah, your raw you materials need... change, and that's yeah. it. And, 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 <laughs> and that is going to be inevitable because we're either going to run out of these things or the market, that is the, 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 the people, the public, is going to say no more. Uh, you know, they're going to say they're going to, they're going to vote with their pocketbooks. And um, the, 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 these companies that don't wake up and have not woken up, it's, this is, this is, we're well into this problem already, mm-hmm. um, they're going to lose. To it, 
the oil business, the collapse of the price of oil. There's, we have all the oil we need. Why do we need the license to drill for another barrel? Yeah. Who's arguing for that? But at the same time, they can't even sell the oil they, they have, nor does the price support the, the continuation of these, of these wells and the, and the, and the fracking uh, um, technology because it costs so much more per barrel than it is, and the price doesn't even come close to supporting it. So, mm. you know, you, you, you suddenly realize that um, if there's going to be consequence, uh, I'm, I say, let's do what we can to make sure that the consequences are mitigated and new opportunities are created. And if you say, all right, it's not oil, it's water, it's a, it's a, it, 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 it's, it, it, it causes us to reorganize things. So let me talk about that just for a minute. Yeah. Uh, you know, we now isolate our, our political decisions or our economic decisions. So if a town upstream in the river decides it wants to put in a paper mill or a chemical plant, and they see taxes and they see jobs, uh, and they, 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 they will do it. And they can do it without a moment's thought about what happens downstream. They can put their waste in that river. Uh, this has been done by the coal industry for for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have had absolutely no consideration for any of the economic or health impacts downstream. And you have in something, let's just say, something as big as the Mississippi River watershed, which touches some 20-something states um, and, and goes from sort of the west side of, uh, of the of the, of the eastern mountain ranges uh, to the east side of the western mountain ranges, and it is a kind of enormous national, international watershed. Mm-hmm. And into it goes all this stuff, all of these nitrates and all of these chemicals and all of this waste from, from uh, cattle and all this stuff goes into the river, and it comes down and it comes down. Now what has it done? It's created in the Gulf of Mexico an enormous hypoxic area which means that's an area in which there is no oxygen and nothing can live. Hmm. So that shows you how interconnected we are politically and so that how an upstream decision changes and has tremendous implication for downstream. So if you say and you understand that, then you suddenly say, well, politics now is not necessarily the rights and prerogatives of of the individual municipality. And people need to begin thinking in terms of watersheds, riverways, and so that the upstream communities and the coastal communities are connected. And they can, and we have many examples of it, work together in ways that allow this new collective to manage the resources, develop and grow, but do it in a sustainable and non-polluting, environmentally neutral or environmentally sustainable way. Boy, I think if we can get people to agree politically across state and party lines especially, that'd be fantastic. I mean, I, I mentioned before, I'm from Nebraska, and Nebraska's uh, fight has been with Kansas because of that very thing. The Republican yeah. River runs through Nebraska into Kansas. They went to, they went to the Supreme Court over this uh, yeah. because yeah. Uh, farmers in Nebraska are taking the water out, and then there's nothing left for Kansas. And so they're <laughs> fighting in court over a river. Right, I, and, I mean, and, and, and look at the Colorado River. And, yeah. and, you know, we, there are contracts into Mexico for the delivery of millions of gallons of water out of the Colorado River to support the efforts of American companies 
um, to to grow using the cheaper labor of Mexico. Okay, fine. Uh, that's what that is. But there's no water at the end of the pipe. And these companies have, which are American companies, they're traded in the United States. These companies now have made a, a financial decision based on a contractual agreement for water that is no longer there. And you can see that in the Jordan River between Israel and Palestine. You can see it in the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Syria and Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan. You can see it in the rivers of India and the Himalayan uh, watershed, which feeds seven countries and millions of people are provided their water through the glacial melt of the other great sort of pole, which is the, 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 the Himalayas and that, that whole glacial range uh, in that part, that part of the world. And we need to understand that if you start looking at something as simple as one town next to another, but then when you start looking at one country or seven countries, you're now looking at an entirely new way to manage this. So if somebody comes in and says, well, I'm going to dam it, and I'm, not, I'm going to control that water way up here, and you're going, to, you're, you're, you're going to have to deal with the consequences, well, that is not a good political, that's not a friendly political act. Mm -mm. It doesn't build, it doesn't contribute to national and international harmony. And so these kinds of things and are, are beginning to be talked about. They're talked about in UN agencies. They're talked about in bilateral relationships between countries. But they are also the sources of, of conflict. And we have existing water wars. We have people at, in conflict over the absence of water or the, or the inequitable distribution of water. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate we uh, there are so many things that I think we could go into. And, and I know we're doing this for for Earth Day, but you said every day is Earth Day. So I think we could probably bring you on again to talk more about uh, environmental impacts and uh, uh, climate change and all those different things and how they're affecting us. Uh, because really, it, like I said at the beginning, uh, the the health of our environment will contribute to the health of of ourselves and and our happiness and and there's so I feel like we've only scratched the surface of of all the things you could talk about. Uh, well, the, that is very that's very true. But, but the final message is that each and every one of us, if we do one thing for the land or we do one thing for the ocean, and we do that and change our behaviors and we do it together in our families, in our churches, in our businesses, in our in our in our communities. We can solve the problem incrementally, step by step, bottom up, by these simple changes in human behavior. Absolutely agree. The book is called Once in Future Ocean. It's available on Amazon.com, IPG.com, and WorldOceanObservatory.org. Peter Neal, thank you so much for your time. A really eye-opening discussion, and we'll look forward to talking to you again uh, down the road here. Thanks again. All right, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Peter Neal, thanking, uh, thanking uh, him for being a part of things. And, again, if you'd like more information about the World Ocean Observatory, again, taking care of our environment is going to help us uh, take care of ourselves and our happiness. Go to World Ocean Observatory and visit livehappynow.com as well. More information is available to you there. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the uh, podcast. If you would like to reach out to us, let us know what you thought about what you heard or something that you would like to hear on Live Happy Now. We've got uh, various ways for you to do it on Twitter at Live Happy, Facebook.com slash Live Happy. 
Almost forgot it there. I've been saying it for months. And you can also send us an email, podcast at livehappy.com. We are so glad that you are joining us, and we hope to hear from you very, very soon. For Peter Neal, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, and remember to always live happy.